Good afternoon. Thank you guys for joining us today for the first of this academic year's multidisciplinary critical care conference. Um, my name is Nirav Shah. I'm one of the pulmonary, I am the pulmonary critical care fellowship program <laughs> you director. Are, you are um, the director. I'm filling in for uh, Mike McCurdy today, who's on vacation, um, to introduce our speaker. But I guess I get the benefit because it, it, it gives me great pleasure to introduce my friend and colleague, Sam Tisherman. Sam came to us from the University of Pittsburgh, um, and it was our, our gain to have him come here a few years ago. And uh, we've been able to work together to really kind of bring together a lot of the critical care education services that, that, um, that we have here at the, at the institution. So it's been, it's been a fun time working with Sam. Sam's a professor of surgery and the director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit. He's also the director of the Center for Critical Care and Trauma Education, where um, we get to do a lot of fun simulation things that we, that we are ever increasing in number. So without further delay, thanks Sam for starting off the year in a right way. We'll see. Thanks, Nero. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, yeah, it's been great trying to, to do more collaborating amongst the various critical care uh, educational programs and also the, the groups, because we've got a lot of stuff going on here on campus, and we ought to be doing more together. So I think you'll be seeing more to come as the year progresses. Uh, but thanks. So yes, I'm the director of the Surgical ICU, and I'm a recovering surgeon. Um, so we'll talk about the belly. And generally what I want to do is go over the general evaluation of somebody who you think has an intra-abdominal uh, catastrophe. Uh, we'll talk about general management and source control, which is one of the key things that separates intra-abdominal badness from other sources of sepsis. And sort of go through just a potpourri of types of cases that we see in the ICU. Uh, as a, examples of, of problems that we all deal with, whether we're dealing initially with surgical patients or, or uh, medical patients. So first, let's talk about general um, evaluation. So here's an example. 67-year-old patient admitted to the medical ICU, let's say, with pneumonia, has multiple medical problems, CHF, AFib, coronary disease, diabetes, has increasing pressure requirements, not tolerating tube feeds, belly seems distended, diffusely tender, has a fever. So, particularly to non-general surgeons, the belly seems to be this black box of bad things that happen in there. So, I'm hopefully going to open up that black box. Um, so, how will we evaluate this patient? Feel free to answer the questions. <laughs> Examine them. Oh man, Neil, how I taught you anything? Okay. <laughs> Examine the patient. What else? Imaging. imaging. What kind of, okay, what kind of imaging? CT. We're CT everybody, right? Okay. And labs. What labs? All right. Good start. So uh, unlike uh, Zachary Cope, who wrote this classic book on early diagnosis of acute abdomen, which goes through some nice things you can do. If you can actually do a history and physical on a patient, uh, we don't have the luxury, because that's what our patient looks like, right? So you can't do all those nice things you could do when somebody walks into your office with belly pain, or even somebody comes into the emergency department with belly pain. And you know, some of the symptoms, 
you can't get a whole lot, right? The guy's intubated, he can't tell you a whole lot. Maybe he winces when you push in certain places. Uh, so physical exam becomes not all that helpful. It is somewhat helpful. So yes, we should examine the patients. Um, this notion of a bunch of people listening to the belly just, I don't know. Listening to the belly is not particularly helpful. Unless you hear some funky sounds, uh, you know, hearing sounds or not is usually not very helpful and not certainly critical to making a decision about operating on somebody with an acute abdomen. Um, so don't spend a lot of time with that. Uh, and the physical exam, it is important to think about, you know, if you can, figure out where the patient's pain or tenderness is the worst. Uh, that's kind of helpful. Uh, but oftentimes in the sick ICU patients, you can't really tell. But do think about you know, if the patient seems to hurt more in the left lower quadrant or the right upper quadrant or whichever part of the belly, you ought to think about anatomically what is beneath your fingers when you're touching the patient. And I'll also give my, my, quit, my quick um, pet peeves about doing the examinal exam. You know, the last thing you ever want to do in your examination of somebody's belly is push hard and deep. The first thing that's really useful to do is just shake the patient. Grab the hips and shake them, shake the bed, whatever. If that hurts or looks like it's bothering them, that's bad. That's, that's peritoneal signs. Then tapping on them, again, that shouldn't really hurt. If that hurts, that's bad. And then you start doing a little light, you know, gentle palpation. And then deep palpation is only for feeling stuff. So it had nothing to do with whether you think the patient's got peritoneal signs or not. So physical exam is kind of tough in the ICU. And then we get into labs, and certainly, I think we mentioned the basic stuff you're going to usually get. You're going to get a CBC, you're going to get liver enzymes, pancreatic enzymes, and lactate. And then there may be some other things about the patient that'll lead you down some other pathways, but these are some basic labs. Okay, so what about imaging? People tend to quickly get some abdominal films. How, you, how useful, or why are plain films even useful at all in the ICU? What are you looking for? Free air. Can you see free air on somebody that's lying flat on the back? Well, you can, but that means there's a decent amount of free air. <laughs> so, and, and I'll show you some examples, but I mean, yes, you, you may get lucky and see some free air. Um, and one of the certain issues that comes up is if somebody just had an operation, how much is normal free air versus non-normal free air? As we just had a you know, patient in the SICU that was a week out from a non gastrointestinal operation, and there was a fair amount of free air there that initially was kind of, eh, it's post-op. Not a week later, really, not, not that much. You can look for air fluid levels, which may or may not be very helpful. You can, so it might have something to do with obstruction. Um, more often than not, though, you're getting films looking for where things are in the belly, and that's kind of useful, like where's your NG2, where's your, your feeding tube, that kind of stuff. So not all that helpful. Um, ideally, if you are looking for free air, you get somebody to, to do an upright chest, um, and here you can see that, yes, there's some free air. You can actually see free air on plain film, even supine. Uh, it may be a little tough to see that, but the th this, and this is actually called regular sign, where you can see both sides of the intestinal wall. If you think about it, the only reason you see stuff on imaging, uh, uh, radiographic imaging, is that you have to have a difference in contrast, a difference in density between two things. So you can see the air is inside the bowel, and then you see it stop when it gets to the wall of the bowel. If you then see the other side of the wall of the bowel, that means there's got to be air outside the wall. So if you see that, that means you got a decent amount of free air in the belly. 
So yes, you can see free air. What other imaging we want to do? Everybody gets CAT scan, right? You can see how old this cartoon is. Uh, <laughs> we miss those days, right? But CT scan probably is a signal imaging for the patient with some sort of bad thing going on in the belly is probably uh, the most useful thing to do. Now the problem is sometimes patients are too sick to go to CT and that, that's an issue to, to think about. <clears throat> Other imaging kind of depends on now getting into more specifics of what do you think is going on. Ultrasound can be really useful. It's very useful to look at the biliary tree, very useful to look at the pelvis. You might see some retroperitoneal vascular stuff uh, but it's kind of hard, particularly if somebody has an ileus and you got a lot of air in front of it. Um, but ultrasound can be used in certain circumstances. MRCP, if you're really worried about the biliary tree per se, MRCP can be done. But that, you know, taking a sick patient, putting him in the magnet for anything is a risky proposition. So that's a problem. HIDA scans, we'll come back to that. Um, and then um, there may be some times to do specific contrast studies, whether it's upper GI, some, a small bowel follow-through or some rectal contrast where you're looking at what happens under fluoroscopy. So that's sort of just a quickie general stuff of what we're going to look at. Let's get into um, management strategies. So one of the things, we'll get into source control shortly, but you know, somebody's got intra-abdominal infection of some sort, they're going to need some antibiotics. And, and you know, this is not something I can't emphasize enough, that the antibiotics are kind of icing on the cake. If you've got a surgical problem in the belly, dealing with that is far more important than the antibiotics. The antibiotics are kind of just, they gotta, you got to get them, but if you don't have good source control, it doesn't matter what antibiotics you pick. So classification of peritonitis. What do we call primary peritonitis? What is that, I should say? How about if I called it spontaneous peritonitis? <laughs> so what's that? Who's just kind of walking down the road one day and gets peritonitis? Liver people. Yeah, anybody's got ascites. You got fluid sitting in the body somewhere, and eventually it's going to get infected. So you have spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, or sometimes termed primary peritonitis. And the reason these categories are important is to think about what bugs you're going to worry about. So primary peritonitis is simply, it's usually simple gram positives, could be E. coli. Okay, so secondary peritonitis, what would that be? Some sort of source. Secondary to something. Usually it's a perforation. And then the key thing is there, now we're talking about gram negatives, and we're talking about anaerobes. How about tertiary? And I'll stop at three, don't worry, there's not a quaternary that I know of. But after source control, or either lack of source control, or the guy that you, let's say you do a Hartman procedure for perf diverticulum, and then a week later he leaks from his rectal stump or he gets an abscess or something. And the key part of that thought process in terms of antibiotics is to recognize that now you're gonna have, yeah, you're gonna still have some gram negatives and, and some anaerobes, but higher risk of multiple drug resistant bugs, pseudomonas, fungus, um, VRE, other, other kinds of bugs. So that's going to change your empiric antibiotic coverage. So it's key to think about these types of peritonitis as you're choosing your empiric antibiotic coverage. 
Now, in terms of cultures, <coughs> certainly if um, you just put a drain in something, you want to send it out for culture, there's kind of the little debate at times about, you know, let's say you operate on somebody and there's basically this stool everywhere. Is it useful to culture a stool or succus or whatever you're, you find in there? Um, the answer is kind of maybe. Uh, you know, somebody who comes in pretty simple perforation, very soon afterwards, not really that sick, people might argue, you know, the chance you find some drug resistant bug or something funky in there is kind of low, so what's the point? On the other hand, if you've got somebody who's like florally septic, um, you want to make sure you don't miss anything, it's probably a reasonable thing to do. So often there will be cultures sent, uh, but it could be argued either way. Blood cultures, I mean, in terms of people with sepsis, septic shock, uh, actually having bacteremia, people with intra-abdominal infections tend to not, as opposed to somebody with pneumonia or sepsis from a urinary tract infection, which would, they'll tend to get bacteremic. People with intra-abdominal stuff, uh, the chances of an actual bacteremia are, are lower. They're not zero, so it's reasonable to get them. And certainly, uh, one of the hallmarks then is it's multiple bugs. I mean, that should definitely clue you in that it's coming from some big source of bacteria like your gut. And then um, think about things like yeast and, and the anaerobes, and we'll come back to that. <clears throat> but so typically, somebody comes in with a perf something or other, we pull out our antibiotic shotgun and fire, and you know, like most patients with sepsis, the important thing is making sure you start broadly and then narrow down your antibiotic coverage once you see what the, what the issue is, and if you have cultures, you follow up on the cultures. If you want uh, a reference, this, the, these are general recommendations from the Infectious Disease Society of America, as well as the Surgical Infection Society. Um, I know this is getting a little old. I keep every, periodically looking back to see if they've updated them, and they say the update's in progress, so maybe there'll be something uh, coming out. But just to kind of run through their recommendations for intra-abdominal infections, just taking all, all, kind of all comers. You want to cover gram-negative rods, you want to cover strep, and you want to cover anaerobes. And then they break it down into whether it's community acquired, so the guy who purses an ulcer at home and comes in, or the guy who purses diverticulum at home comes in. There are a lot of choices. You've got cephalosporins, you've got uh, ertapenem and, and um, other carbapenems, you've got uh, quinolones, tigacycline, uh, combinations of you know, some of the cephalosporins that don't give you anaerobic coverage, you want to throw flagell in there. Uh, so you got a whole lot of choices, so it should be fairly easy to cover them. Somebody who comes in that's sicker, then you might think of bigger guns, carbapenems, zosin, uh, cefepime, along with flagell. Again, if you're using a, a third generation or fourth generation cephalosporin, you need to have the anaerobic coverage. They do not recommend, specifically, don't use unison alone just because the resistance seems to be increasing from E. coli. Similarly, cefotetan, clindamycin, there seems to be increasing resistance. Empiric antifungals is something that does come up, um, particularly with uh, perforation of the upper GI tract. Some surgeons will really uh, push for it. Uh, they say not necessarily unless you find fungus in the whatever you send from the operating room. The debate, I'm sure, is continuing on. The debate is, you know, if you, if you actually have fungus in there and it's important, 
and you wait till you actually grow it, which could be days later, you're going to be behind the eight ball. On the other hand, if you give it to everybody, there's, there's cost in that and, and potentially pushing for resistance. And so the answer is not all that clear. Um, probably not a terrible thing to do, uh, giving somebody some fluconazole for a few days. Um, but it's, they, they would say from the, the data as of eight years ago, it's not clearly indicated. Similarly, aminoglycosides uh, have toxicity that other antibiotics don't have. And you got that whole list that I just showed you of choices. So why up front you use an aminoglycoside unless you find that you've got some resistant bugs you really need it for. And then when you get into healthcare associated problems, that's a different story. The guy's been like getting antibiotics for something, whether it's previous intra-abdominal problem or something outside the belly. Now you definitely have more risk of this fungus and the, or you've got enterococcus and VRE and you've got uh, MRSA. So that should play into your decision making. So the guy comes in from home, uh, might be very different than the person who's been here for a while with something else and now develops an intra-abdominal process. The duration of therapy, a lot of ways to look at this. Um, right now, generally, this recommendation is about four days after you have source control. That's an important part of this. It used to be kind of look at the patient. Seems kind of old school, but look at the patient. Belly's kind of doing okay, not having fever, don't have a white count, don't have a bandemia. You would stop the antibiotics. Um, this is, I think, the only trial I'm going to throw out there, in part because it's got the greatest name for a trial, the stop it trial, uh, looking at the timing or the duration of antibiotics after uh, management of intra-abdominal infection. So over 500 patients, they had source control and they randomized them to basically what I just said about a clinical follow-up of no fever, no white count, no ileus, <clears throat> stop the antibiotics, versus just give them four days. And they found that in terms of um, surgical site infections, recurrent infection and death, no difference. So I think that's pretty well what we try to practice here. Unless there's some really strong reason, then if somebody, now they have source control, four days is really all you need. Is that true for everybody? I mean, you could argue, what about the immunosuppressed patient? You know, and I'm not sure we know the definite answer to that. Uh, so any questions so far about the initial workup management, antibiotics? So, and so this is one more interesting thing to think about. So if you have somebody that's got sepsis, uh, severe sepsis, septic shock, which I know those words are supposed to be leaving, but they are still what CMS looks like or looks at. We have a surviving sepsis campaign that has recommendations for what we should do with that patient with sepsis in the first three hours and then within the first six hours. So we should be doing things like taking a lactate, getting blood cultures, starting antibiotics, giving them fluid bolus, and then following up on lactase, starting pressures, uh, and re-examining their, their fluid status within the six hours. The challenge to which I think there's been minimal research and I think we ought to do more research on is, so what do you do with the patient who comes in with septic shock from perf something or other? So that you have competing issues of um, antibiotics and source control. 
And in general, we have issues of how do we get antibiotics to patients that are really, really sick. So I'm just going to throw this out there that because uh, we just had a meeting uh, an hour and a half ago to talk about this uh, project to look at when patients get their antibiotics in relation to sort of time zero of when they got septic, how quickly, how, how readily do we get that done within the first three hours as we're supposed to do by these guidelines and other factors that play into why we sometimes don't hit that mark. Is it because the patient's really sick and there's other stuff going on, like that kind of a surgical patient needs to go to the OR? Is the nurse going to have the time to throw the antibiotics up and get them in within the three hours? That kind of stuff. So if anybody's interested in, in helping us with that project, touch base with me after the, the talk. But here's the, the balance, and I said I don't really know the answer because I think on one hand, you want to get people fluid resuscitated, you want to get the antibiotics started, you want to get them on pressures that need them, all that kind of stuff. But then you also want to control the problem. If you take them right to the operating room, if you, to compare somebody with intra-abdominal badness to somebody that's got a ruptured spleen. Somebody comes in with a ruptured spleen and hemorrhagic shock, there's nothing that really should happen to them except giving them enough blood to keep them alive until you get them to the operating room to take the spleen out. If a different patient comes in with perf diverticulitis, that's in septic shock, if you take that patient right to the operating room without fluid resuscitation, without starting pressures, without some of this basic resuscitation, and you give them a general anesthetic, they're going to go Pfft. So how do you balance that? And I don't know the answer to that. I think we get plenty of septic people coming through here and, and have intra-abdominal problems, and I think we have an opportunity to potentially look at that too. So that can be another project if anybody's interested. So again, any questions? All right, so we're going to move into bunch of examples, and so we'll need some, some uh, input here. So back to that first patient that we started with. Patient's in the MICU, pneumonia, has a bunch of medical problems, now is on higher levels of pressors, not tolerating tube feeds, belly's distended and tender, fever, and we decided we're going to get a bunch of labs, we're going to get a CT scan, okay? So what's our differential? Ilias? Ilias is not really a diagnosis. Because people don't just have the, the theater doesn't stop for no reason. There's got to be some reason for it. I mean, it could be, I mean, it could, it could be just a lot of narcotics, and so there just could be that. We could have got ischemia from all the crazy amounts of pressing Okay, so ischemic. Yep. What else? Independently bad. Could be unrelated, okay? <laughs> what other things happen to people that are sick? Acalyxcholestitis, pancreatitis. Bowel obstruction. Again, unless you did something in the belly, that's going to be, you know, why do you get bowel obstruction now and not before? I mean, it can happen, yeah. All right, so we got ischemic bowel, so we didn't mention perforation. Although I will say, since everybody gets some sort of stress ulcer prophylaxis, whether they need it or not, um, the, the rate of this is way lower than it was for those of us who did surgical training 20, 30 years ago. Uh, but it can still happen. So we've got C. diff, acalculus colitis, any procedures, pancreatitis was mentioned, it's possible. Uh, I put abscess on her only because that's also one of those things where 
You don't just suddenly get an abscess in your belly unless somebody's been there or you've perforated something. So again, you gotta look for what the source of that was. Okay, so this patient has some labs, white count 20,000, Lorenzo is normal, amylase, lipase, as you see there, lactate's four. <clears throat> Thoughts? Twenty thousand? You see twenty thousand all the time. But it's a significantly high white count. Yep. Could be. Might not be. What else can give you elevations of amylase lipase that are not pancreatitis? Ischemia. And that's that's why I put this in here because it, you, know, you see in the amylase, everybody thinks the amylase lipase, okay, the pancreas, they're elevated, it must be pancreatitis. But if you have a perforation of your bowel, like perforated ulcer, you have dead gut, um, even really bad cholecystitis, you can have ele elevations of those enzymes, pancreas is fine. So and particularly when you have just those mild elevations, like those numbers I just showed you, don't assume it's the pancreas. So what's wrong with this picture? Portovenous gas. How do you know it's portovenous gas and not biliary? It's at the periphery, right? So that's an important thing to keep in mind, that, that portal, it's, it's kind of useful, P and P. So portal is kind of periphery, and uh, if it's within the biliary tree, that's, that tends to be more central. And what's wrong with this picture? Pneumatosis. So if you can see the air here. And one of the important things here to, to help you figure out, if it's not blatantly obvious, um, the difference between pneumatosis and just air that's in the bowel anyway is gravity. If you think about it, this guy's lying flat on his back and you got some stool or fluid stuff here in the GI tract, air should not be behind the more liquid or solid stuff. This air is normal, but that air is not. So, needs an operation. <clears throat> Mesenteric ischemia, just a couple quick points. The various types, you can have thromboembolic disease, so he, he has history of AFib and heart failure, so he could be flicking off emboli. Uh, you can have thrombosis of somebody that's already got disease, and that'll tend to occur closer to the orifice, so you tend to get a broader uh, extent of bowel that is um, dead or dying because of this, as opposed to an embolus that could be way out here and just have little, little pieces of bowel that aren't doing very well. Venous thrombosis is something to think about, particularly if somebody's got a hypercoagulable state, portal hypertension, can be a trauma. And non-occlusive was mentioned that high-dose pressors for something else could lead to ischemia uh, now. And invariably, these are people that are otherwise sick, so it's never an easy thing to, to, to deal with. Uh, in terms of management, you know, if you've got signs of mesoteric ischemia, uh, you know, the abdominal pain out of portion to findings, that's great. I mean, that's, that's like for the guy who walks in and is talking to you in the emergency department. That doesn't help us all that much in the ICU. CT scan is nice if the patient can tolerate going to scan and you got the luxury. But if you're really, if it's like high on your list, you can't rule it out, uh, it, it gets to be a difficult decision making about do you need to just go to the OR and take a look. And people have done things like laparoscopy at the bedside. Diagnostic peritoneal lavage at the bedside. Little things you can kind of 
see if there's something at all there to justify going to the operating room. Because certainly, you take someone that's really sick from something else, you do a negative operation on them, that's not going to help them either. So that can be very difficult. Uh, and then the more insidious things are typically more like the venous thrombosis or non-inclusive uh, ischemia. Operatively, the surgeon is going to assess the vessels. Any dead valve is going to come out. Uh, if there needs to be some revascularization, that should be done. Uh, and then, a, then often a planned second look. But I just wanted to, to emphasize the point of, you know, when it gets really high on your list and you really think that's what's going on, the patient's too sick to go to scan, do other stuff, sometimes you just got to go to the operating room. All right, different case. 52-year-old female, large right intracerebral hemorrhage, now seems to have acute, you know, like boom, acute diffuse abdominal pain, been in the hospital for 10 days. Differential? Cushing's? Okay. What else? Could be anything. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you gotta, uh, certainly, you know, metastatic ischemia, other stuff could happen too, all the things we said before. I, this, I just, I like this scan because this was actually a patient I had who kind of fit that description we just had. And the radiologist pointed out to me, okay, the hole's right there. Here's the contrast leaking out and all this fluid in the, in the abdomen. Again, you know, we see way, way less of this now because everybody gets PPI or H2 blockers, but it can still happen, particularly really stressed people, you know, neurologic patients uh, are at high risk, uh, as are a lot of our patients. Now, the other thing I'll just point out about perfed ulcers, now that one clearly needs an operation. And from a surgical standpoint, you know, whether you do it laparoscopically open, as long as you know what you're doing, it doesn't probably matter. And, and this is some comments for the non, like, incredibly sick people, that, you know, sometimes patients come in and have evidence of a perf, and the surgical team might decide not to immediately operate. And, we had recently had one of these in our patient in, our, in the SICU who ended up getting an operation. But there's some here's some guidelines in terms of considering non-operative management of perforated ulcers. Patient stable, doesn't have peritonitis on exam, not really septic, minimal pneumoperitoneum, and no active restabilization. So there's a lot of criteria there to say, okay, I don't really absolutely need to operate on this patient. Um, most of the time, they're going to need some sort of uh, procedure. And I'll just throw one of my other little pet peeves. It's, it's, I think, way clearer to everybody if you talk about non-operative management of something versus operative management uh, as opposed to talking about conservative management. Because sometimes the conservative thing to do is operate on somebody. So just, it always, it's funny. Again, I'll throw my pet peeves out there. That equating non-operative and conservative just is confusing. Non-operative management versus operative management. All right, case three. 67-year-old female, left lower quadrant pain, getting more diffuse. She's got tenderness all around, but not peritonitic. Uh, kind of sick, you know, fever, dehydrated, nauseated, not pooping, white count 23. Thoughts? Diverticulitis? Again, it could be ischemic bowel, it could be some other stuff. But you kind of get, you're going to, you're going to, what's that? Was some other comment? Oh, okay. 
I mean, I know that as we go through these, you start ruling stuff out because I had already talked about it. So, <laughs> but the reason I'm throwing in as patient with diverticulitis is this is, can be a nice case where if you got a loculated abscess, it would be a good case for a percutaneous drainage. Um, so I ended up taking care of a wife of a retired radiologist who, when she came in, actually having gotten sick when they were visiting, uh, I believe it was the Czech Republic, and he didn't want her to get taken care of there, got her here, got her scanned, and now she's like several days into this whole thing. She's had several decent-sized abscesses. And I think one concept that's really important is that the patient's like not dying in front of you and clearly in septic shock or something, and the body has walled something off, you should take advantage of that. So, I mean, this, this would have been the right thing to do anyway, but of course with the radiologist who happened to, be on the, happened to have been on the staff there talking to his friends, we, we just perk drained a couple of them. Uh, she got better and then we you know, brought her back several months later for an elective resection, which people could debate whether she needed it or not, but at the time for her it seemed to be the right thing to do. But anyway, I mean, that's, that's a big abscess in the middle there. Um, but you could you know, drain that thing with a dart from across the room. But it's important if the patient's have walled something off, it's useful to, to drain it and not do a big operation. Because you take somebody like that to the operating room, and you're going to end up doing a resection and giving her a colostomy. Yeah, you can debate about washouts and that kind of stuff, but decent chance to get an ostomy. Okay. Uh, back to another Mickey kind of patient. 70 year old female, recently treated for pneumonia. Now it's diffuse abdominal pain, diarrhea. Okay, so what do we think? <laughs> Her white count is 40,000. <laughs> so, okay. Um, so there's a great uh, CT scan showing this, this nasty looking, thickened uh, colon. Uh, we would send off the C. diff from her stool um, and, and we make the diagnosis. In the old days, you could stick a scope up there and you might see pseudomembranes. Now keep in mind, these kind of pseudomembranes, you can actually see with mild ischemia too. So the pseudomembranes are not absolutely related to C. diff, but with that kind of colon, without a white count of 40,000, the story is certainly C. diff. Now the management, uh, you know, we typically start with antibiotic coverage. We've got options of metronidazole, enteral vanco, Fodoxamycin uh, on the antibiotic side, and then surgically. And one important point I'll make is: don't if you if you're not in the surgical ICU or not don't have a surgeon involved, don't wait till the patient is like dying and f clearly failing medical therapy before getting surgical involvement. Because if you wait to the point the patient's got multiple organ failure and septic shock, the patient's going to die without an operation, the patient's going to die with an operation, so you, know, you don't want to wait until the patient's that sick. So if the patient's not responding relatively promptly from the medical therapy, then you ought to think about a surgical consultation. Now the classic surgical operation has been a total abdominal colectomy, because the patient only asked to me. Um, I'll put a plug in because this is a procedure that got started at my previous institution doing the loop ileostomy where you, you bring out distal ileum and now you can uh, basically put a tube into the colon, just irrigate it out. If you think about the, the pathophysiology here is the toxin and if you just wash everything out of the colon, you can 
get rid of the cause of the patient's illness, and then you just drain the distal ileum. And then later on, when they get better, you just it's fairly simple to, to close the ileostomy. And they did do this for patients in septic shock. So it doesn't preclude doing it. People have to understand how to do it, and there's a whole protocol of enemas and stuff, and, and flushing with um, uh, the lavage of the right fluid and all that kind of stuff. So it's something to think about. It depends a bit on you know, the surgical consultation. I would just encourage that you get a surgeon involved early before the patient's dying from the disease. I've seen two, I think, since I've been here. I've suggested it, but <laughs> since I'm not operating here, they end up with colectomies. I think there's, there's some reticence to do it when the patients are like really, really sick, and that's kind of, those are some of the patients that the people at Pitt did it on. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you, you haven't totally burned the bridge. If the patient is failing, you still go in and take the colon out. If you think about it, though, you know, total colectomy is a big operation and the patient is really sick. Uh, laparoscopically, bringing up loop ileostomy is pretty simple. It gets a little more complicated if the patient's, you know, morbidly obese and it's harder to bring up the ileum. But... So it's at least worth thinking about. Okay, 55-year-old male. STEMI, cardiogenic shock, PCI, balloon pump, binodropes, bad heart. Still on event, not tolerating tube feeds, fever leukocytosis, some vague rate of quadrant tenderness. So what happened when we touched? <laughs> what do you think? Could be a calculus going to say. It's only because we haven't worked on it. Um, so you have a white count. A key thing here is they're going to have normal LLTs. Unless something bad is going with common duct, they're going to normal LT, so that doesn't help you rule it in and rule it out. If they're abnormal, it could just be from the sepsis. Pancreatic enzymes are normal. Imaging? Well, we'll get to that, but ultrasound is still the best first choice. You can see thickening of the wall, you can see fluid around, except you know, sometimes these patients have ascites and you know, fluid aorist doesn't always help, but thickened wall can help you. So ultrasound, it's easy, you don't move the patient, so that's, that's still the best first imaging. CT isn't bad. Here's a nice scan showing actually air in the wall of the gallbladder. So this is a really sick gallbladder. Um, but if those things are still equivocal, that's where the HIDA scan could be useful. Again, you know, the patient's really, really sick in the ICU. It you know, becomes debatable how useful it is. You're going to have some false positives. The key thing with this is what you're looking for is what you don't see. You never see the gallbladder. And ideally, to decrease your false positive rate, you should give them morphine or some other narcotic to constrict the sphincter body, increase pressure in the ductal system, and increase the chance the contrast gets into the gallbladder. Another thing is, if the patient has some, some degree of liver disease, they will never con concentrate the, con the, the contrast, which means you'll never see the gallbladder, but you also don't see the biliary tree, and you don't see the bowel, which means it basically is a useless test. Management, antibiotics, you know, the, the, the best operation for this is still doing a cholecystectomy. So the, the risk comes down to, or the choice comes down to how sick is the patient. The really sick patient, do a cholecystostomy. If they fail, you can still do the cholecystectomy. Um, 
but they'll often get better and then debate about whether or not you need to do a, an interval of cholecystectomy. Okay? So we tend to, it bothers me every once in a while because I see people get a drain put in the gallbladder and it's like not great evidence that they actually had acute cholecystitis and now you got to deal with this drain that's sitting there for a while. So you ought to be a little thoughtful, but you know, if you get nothing else, it's not an unreasonable thing to do. Uh, okay, 65-year-old male, severe stroke, got a trach and peg. Now it's abdominal extension, septic. So just did a procedure on the person, right? <laughs> so what's that? Went through colon. Um, that often, if you go through the colon into the stomach to put the peg in, that'll, that'll tend to cause a little bit of irritation, a little local infection, and maybe obstruction of the colon. Uh, unless it's loose, then it could freely leak. The bigger problem is this, where like, here's a stomach wall, here's the peg, which is clearly outside the stomach, and you got fluid in the abdomen, which is basically two peats. So coming out of the stomach is the worst thing. Uh, but something's wrong with the procedure. The other thing that can happen is the buried bumper where it's been partially pulled out of the belly. That doesn't tend to work too well either. Uh, okay. So I had to throw some pancreatitis in there. So here's the 48-year-old, diffuse belly pain, very high light pain damage. You're not going to see those kind of levels with ischemic bowel or a perfed ulcer. So now you have pancreatitis. I just want to make a couple points about pancreatitis because that could be a whole talk. Imaging. Ultrasound is important to rule out gallstones as a cause. MRCP is helpful if you're concerned there's the obstruction of the common duct. CT, they all get CT scans, and they continue to get CT scans. Um, you're doing that first off to rule out the diagnoses when they come in, and then to look for complications, like an abscess, pseudocyst, that kind of stuff. Management, we feed them enterally. It's not totally clear you have to get this post-ligamentotrites tube that we've done for years. Can maybe just post pyloric, maybe you just feed the stomach. Um, they don't get antibiotics. If we're concerned about the biliary treat, they may need an ERCP. And then basically, when you do the scan, you see some fluid. The, the management now is almost invariably drain it, and then the step up approach, where you drain the collections and you may have put bigger drains in, but then eventually, later on, do an operative procedure. Now you can do a video assisted, retroperitoneal dissections, and get in there kind of following the track of your drains and stay out of the anterior part of the abdomen unless you have to be there. That's the quick general management that we're doing. So last patient, 68-year-old male, acute diffuse abdominal pain, hypotensive, pulsatile mass on exam. There's the ultrasound of his aorta, or a CT scan of the aorta. Okay, so again, this is not an infectious problem yet, um, but you know, ruptured triple A's uh, do come in. And I just thought this was kind of interesting. I was looking around for stuff on EVARs, and endovascular aortic uh, reconstructions, and the, it's the EVAR Lucian. And I love that they have these colorful covers of this. You know, you guys all read this monthly, right? Endovascular today. Um, but anyway, a lot of these patients are getting managed with an endovascular approach. Um, some aren't. Um, it depends on the anatomy of the aorta as well as their, their status when they come in. Post-op complications from uh, an open repair of a AAA? Bowel ischemia? 
Very rare with if you're if you're low, if it's inferrenal, very rare spinal cord ischemia. Much more of a problem if you're dealing with thoracic aorta. Aortic fistula, true, all that. So you got the usual stuff. I mean, you can always start off with bleeding, infection, vascular injuries, distal ischemia, endo leaks if it's in a vascular pair. I mean, they're all patients who have cardiac disease, so they have cardiac events, perioperative respiratory failure, AKI, particularly if you have to have suprarenal cross clamp. So it's always important to ask the surgeon, did they cross clamp above the renals? How long did they cross clamp? Um, and then spinal cord ischemia is very rare. So um, this, is, this, this is a real case. The guy was driving across the state of Pennsylvania, is out in the middle of frickin' nowhere, has belly pain, pulls his car over, gets to this little hospital, where they actually repaired his AAA, but then post-op he's hypotensive and he's got a STEMI. It looks like they have a STEMI. So they send him to us at the University of Pittsburgh, but they send him to the cardiologist. And that's why I have the hammer and nail, because they're sure he's having a STEMI. What do cardiologists do? They cath him. His coronaries are clean. At some point along the line, they actually took the sheets down and looked at the guy. <laughs> And his belly was tight as a drum, diffusely tender. <laughs> he was not bleeding, but clearly needed an operation, took him to the OR, and a sigmoid was dead. So that brings up two things. So there's the risk of colonic ischemia from the repair, because you, you, if the IMA wasn't already gone, it's gone now. Uh, you tend not to revascularize anybody, because <clears throat> you're just worried about getting him off the table alive. So high, and there's hypotensive, so high risk of ischemic colitis. And if you're concerned about it, based on your physical exam, maybe a CT scan, lactate, whatever, that's what you would see if you stuck a scope up there, which is kind of useful because if it's only mild, you stick a scope up, you just see a little friable mucosa, you can treat them with antibiotics. You see that, needs an operation. So just to take a, a minute or two to talk about abdominal compartment syndrome, uh, physical exam is helpful. I mean, I, when I go to see somebody, somebody says might have abdominal compartment syndrome, you can kind of push on the belly and it's kind of soft to say, well, what are you worried about? But when it's tight, then you kind of worry, how bad is it? So we can measure bladder pressures. Uh, and then there's the you know, intra-abdominal hypertension, uh, grading systems, there are various things around, but certainly above 12 would qualify as intra-abdominal hypertension. And then above 20, with some evidence of organ dysfunction is then the abdominal compartment syndrome. If you don't have organ dysfunction, then it's just worse intra-abdominal hypertension. And keep in mind, really obese people will have higher pressures to start with. Um, so you gotta put it all in the context of the situation, which is why sometimes non-surgeons might feel a little frustrated because the pressure is like 28. Why isn't this patient take, going back to the operating room? And, you know, Surgeon, you always have to weigh risks and benefits of operating on somebody and does the patient really have the syndrome. Kind of like the peritonitis, there's primary, secondary, tertiary, or you know, it's a primary intra-abdominal process or it's secondary something outside the belly, like massive fluid resuscitation. Tertiary would be just, you know, keeps on coming back. And it affects basically every organ. The kidneys, the lungs, have high airway pressures. It can affect venous return, so it affects your, your cardiac output. Uh, Spleen and blood flow obviously can be decreased, liver can be decreased flow. And then at this institution, people have described a multiple compartment syndrome and actually patients with high ICPs who got better when the abdomen was decompressed. 
risk factors, fluid resuscitation, massive transfusions, hypothermia, basically being sick and getting a lot of fluid and being obese. We can decrease the risk by not using a ton of crystalloids on patients, um, same with burn resuscitation, and then obviously if you don't even close the abdomen, you pretty much can't get this. So you'll see you know, the ACE service will often do a sort of damage control kind of approach to patients with intra-abdominal badness. Uh, so the belly's open, you can't really get this. Um, this is actually some fairly recent data from the, the group in Arizona where they really, really tried hard to limit crystalloids. In fact, sometimes they used hypertonic saline too, and by doing that, they decreased the abdominal compartment syndrome rate, they decreased actual damage control apparatomies. This is both trauma and non-trauma, uh, and even maybe mortality. So I think crystalloids, which used to be the hallmark of you know, surgical diseases and everything, we really ought to be limiting. And from our standpoint, outside of the operating room, what we can do is sedate the patients, paralyze them, uh, evacuate intraluminal contents to make sure the NG2 is working well. If there are large fluid collections that we can just drain percutaneously, we should do that. Uh, optimize abdominal perfusion pressure, which is MAP versus intra-abdominal pressure. Keep that over 50 and try and get rid of fluid. And if they do a decompressive laparotomy, the goals are basically to decompress everything, protect the viscera, uh, don't let the fascia fall away too much, continuously evacuate fluid, and cover up sensitive things. A couple final comments on drains. One important concept, drains don't drain. If the drainage starts dropping off or stops from some drain, could be good, could be really bad. So it could be clotted uh, or obstructed by something. So keep that in mind. Um, but drains can be useful if they're placed strategically uh, with an abscess, controlled fistula, whatever. But there's risk, erosion, contamination. So just keep that in mind. And there are you know, passive kind of drains, which you'll, we don't see really in the abdomen, but other parts of the body. Um, suction, closed suction drains like JPs. Wound management, primary closure, delayed primary closure, where you close the fascia, then close the skin. And the secondary intention is basically wet the dry dressings and or back and slowly gets better. And in terms of negative pressure wound therapy or VACs, the idea is you pull this fluid away from the wound itself as well as the, the, the tissue around the wound. By doing some of that, the deforming the wound edges, that improves the remodeling, increases blood flow, decreases inflammation, gets the bugs out of the way. So there seems to be some good benefit of using VACs. Just a nice little diagram showing the back uh, sitting in a wound. And you'll hear about like black sponge, white sponge, and this black sponge tends to be allow fluid to pass through it, but it's kind of stiffer. You don't want to put it next to delicate structures. The white sponge can be, um, uh, won't get stuck onto structures, so it could be onto things like uh, that are more sensitive. And then basically putting some non-adherent plastic over the bowels usually useful to kind of really protect the bowel because that's what's going to get injured and then you get fistulas and bad problems. And you know there's the VAC system which is actually trademarked. Um, just one other of my pet peeves. There's a term that I think is the worst term anybody of medicine ever came up with which is the poor man's VAC. So I would urge you never to use that and if you hear people use it tell them to stop using it 
Because, you know, if, if I found out that my wife got a poor man's back, my first question would be, why didn't my wife get a rich man's back? Okay? So just call it a, call it a vac, call it a Barker vac, whatever you want to call it, but don't call it that. Oh, and the last thing that the ACEs team has been doing a bit of is direct parent needle resuscitation, where they operate on somebody, they put a vac in, but they have some JPs or some other drains inside the abdomen, and they'll irrigate it with peritoneal dialysis fluid. It kind of washes out evil humors. It, it improves blood flow to the gut, uh, and the liver decreases inflammatory cytokines, may improve some outcomes in terms of wound closure and abdominal complications. Uh, so this, this is something that's been around for a while. The concept has been, so you might see this. Um, I guess we'll see how well it works. The last thing is clinical failure. If somebody's got an intra-abdominal problem and not doing well, yes, you should think about extra-abdominal problems. You should think about your antibiotics. But the number one thing is think about what was done to the patient and was it done appropriately and is there still a problem there. And this is Willie Sutton, famous bank robber. When he was asked, why do you rob banks? He said, because that's where the money is. So if, if, if a surgeon put an incision somewhere in the body, one first thought, or maybe at least second thought, ought to be, is there something going on there that's bad that's causing the patient to get sick? So Sutton's Law, I think, is a useful concept to us. Yes, a patient who had a perfed ulcer can now get pneumonia, but always think about, is there some abscess in the belly or a reperforation or something like that? Failure source control, basically the really sick patients, older patients, comorbidities, that kind of stuff, that's pretty obvious. And, certainly, and the key thing is there's a difference in surgical infection and medical infections. Even pneumonia, urinary tract infection, your choice of antibiotics is key. You have a surgical problem, source control is key. So always think about that when you see how the patient is recovering. So we've gone over so the general evaluation of patients with intra-abdominal badness. Uh, which is often going to include some other things like lab tests and imaging because you can't get a good exam or good history. Management is going to likely involve figuring out what's wrong with them. Uh, you're going to give them antibiotics, but source control is a key thing, and that's, a, that's why you've got to figure out what's wrong with them and figure out how you can control the source. Some final comments. So the presentations of intra-abdominal badness in the ICU can be subtle. The workup is complicated by the fact there's a bunch of other stuff going on. But you've got to figure out what the specific entities are. Uh, although there sometimes doesn't matter. The patient clearly has rip-roaring peritonitis, needs an operation. Do not pass go. Do not get a CT scan. Do not collect $200. Go to the operating room. And then early surgical consultation is important. Don't wait till somebody's clearly failed medical therapy before you get a surgeon involved. And the end result is going to be dependent upon source control. And if the patient gets an operation, it's um, critical that the surgeon has controlled the source appropriately. So, thanks a lot. Happy to answer any questions. <laughs> Dr. Reynolds. So, how often are you doing the direct for the peritoneal uh, abide? Uh, the question is how often are we doing the direct peritoneal resuscitation, DPR? Uh, it seems to be increasing in frequency. I don't know whether it's dependent upon whether Dr. Diaz is doing it. I don't know Dr. Feliciano. Any comes a couple times a month. Yeah, I've seen it uh, like twice in the last couple of weeks. I've been on in the CQ, which is up from my. Uh, I hadn't seen it until like this this year. Other questions? Great. Great. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. <laughs>